Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, we've got a really cool author in with us today. Now, writing for children is a skill, and reading children's literature is a revelation. In the collection of stories, Laugh Your Head Off Again and Again, we delve into the world of imagination and improbable possibilities. And one of the authors in this collection is with us today. So, Tony Wilson, welcome to 3CR. Hi, David. Hi, Jan. Thanks for having me in. Pleasure. Now, your contribution is... Sir Bum. Sir Bum. Now, that, that is, uh, that's absolutely in the sweet spot of eight-year-old humour um, and, in fact, came from the brain of an eight-year-old. Well, yes. Well, tell us that. So I was, I, I was asked to be a contributor to this collection. I did it last year, um, the Laugh Your Head Off Again, I think it was called, and now it's Laugh Your Head Off Again and Again. But last year, um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I thought, well, I'll do it again. And, and I was trying to think of a funny story, but I didn't have one. I mean, I, I was trying to generate an idea, and I said to my eight-year-old, I need a funny story. What can I write a funny story about? And he was being a smart aleck, really, and he just said, I don't know, Sir Bum? And he didn't even look at me, kept walking. It was meant to be, that's my punchline, get on with it. And then I thought, I'm going to show him. I'm actually going to write Sir Bum. And I didn't have any idea what Sir Bum would be, but I did know that I was going to call it Sir Bum. Well, that raises a couple of questions. First and foremost, the story is about Harland Baum, and you then riff on the sound of the name, which is really what kids do to come up with nicknames. Well, they do. It's such a playground activity to take a name and and twist it round and usually uh, take it down the all the offensive paths that a name can be taken and so I thought you know what about how can I have this Sir Bum guy uh, and the idea went oh well I'll make it that he becomes a hero it starts off that he's he's um, that he's sort of a teased kid for having the the name Baum um, and it becomes Bum in the playground very quickly and he's he's Harry Baum so or Harland Baum becomes Harry Baum becomes Harry Bum paragraph one perfectly logical <laughs> paragraph one sorts out the way that the uh, primary school would handle that name exactly and it's picked up on another story in there as well where somebody's gone an unfortunate surname of chicken. So it's it's a, a, a sort of continual sort of uh, problem that uh, eight-year-olds have. Well, it's a big deal for kids to have a well, – your name is a big deal. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and actually my son's name is Harry and, and, and we – thought about calling him Harland to have a kind of a grand prime ministerial name we thought uh Harland would be the direction we go rather than Harold and, and and so that's how yeah, how it evolved again then you've got the divide between adults and uh, children how cruel of you to think of your child's future in that way when they've got to live through the playground years. Well, that's right. So I'm not sure Harry or Harland, as he isn't, uh, is going to be Prime Minister. But the idea then is, well, you say, oh, how can he become a hero? If he's going to be Sir Bum at the end, as a writer, I've got to take him on his journey from kind of teased uh, Harry Bum in, in the playground to heroic Sir Bum at the end. And, and, and for that, I, I actually drew on a, a real-life incident as well. Um, it came from 
my childhood when when we were little we used to we used to play this game on the trampoline where we would try to uh, bounce the little one so you know I had three uh, friends say I was 10 or 11 years old uh, and I had a five-year-old brother um, where we would all hold hands and we'd throw my brother a little bit higher up in the air and we'd all do a sit together we call it um, one two three sit and then we'd send him off with that you know, triple trajectory weight, throwing him up. And we actually bounced him over the fence once. <laughs> and so putting him over at 45 degrees into the into the park, um, that is a, a real-life story. So the improbable is, in fact, quite probable. So Harlan Baum, uh, hairy bum, he go, he's, he's dragged into a one, two, three sit type scenario. And I just used the writer's trick of the what if, um, the extension of the truth. What if when my brother went over the fence in, into the park, what if he actually crashed down? Um, well, don't give all of it away. They'll yeah. have to read the story of themselves. But he becomes a hero. That's right. Basically. So again, this sort of extension of thinking. And there's another story in there about the Halloween chicken um, where you have a vampire echidna. <laughs> and, and you begin by reading it and you think, well, there's an echidna under the bed, okay. but Or a, a hedgehog. and But it's the children's world where they can have these sorts of extensions and it makes sense. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and in these uh, comedy books, I mean, the, it's called Laugh Your Head Off Again and Again. So the... The aim was to make the kids laugh, and 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 I think in doing that, um, you know, my my aim is to try to to sell a real world scenario, and so that trick of making a Halloween uh, vampire echidna <laughs> really feel like it's under the bed. I, I didn't write that piece, but yes. um, but that that is the the writer's skill, and it's what um, you know, yeah. everyone is trying to sell a lie, aren't they? When yeah. they're writing well, fiction, Alex and- Rat wrote that one, but even the. Uh, improbability is very close to um, possibility. I mean, there's the um, what story in the shower, uh, the Andy Griffiths story uh, in the shower with Andy, where he thinks of, well, I could fill the shower recess up if I used the silicon Dad has in his garage, and he goes about doing it. Well, yeah, it's what a boy would do. It is, and, and, and it's also answering a question that I think a lot of boys have asked and, what a, and girls may ask as well, but when they're, they're in the shower and they're thinking, you know, what if I made a bath? And, we, and, and I think every kid sits down in the bottom of the bath of, of the shower and goes, I've made a little bath in the bottom of the shower, and then it's just an extension. How, how far could we go here, you know? And, but see, uh, my, most kids end up just putting their finger in the <laughs> yeah, plug hole right. and getting it stuck there. But, um, but, but this character seals up all That's it. right. It's a quite a dangerous little uh, cabin he's made for himself. And, and, and But certainly that's that's a fantastic uh, imagination Andy has for and, – and, you know, he's, he's not – But he's it's, not, it's in keeping with the thinking, as you say, of an eight-year-old. Yeah. How do you – Apart from asking your eight-year-old son Harry, how do you place yourself there as a writer? Well, I think it's it's remembering what you enjoyed yourself. So it's it's about thinking that you know slapstick is often very funny, um, toilet humour is funny to them, silliness is funny to them. So strange things arriving or presents that turn into something else and and the things that that are less interesting to them are, are you know sweeping political satires you know but really um the, the so much of what we enjoyed as kids when you think of the television shows you liked like the the muppets or or the simpsons um there's humor can operate on a couple of levels but there's some 
base rules for, for not getting too progressed when you're dealing with eight-year-olds. But this is the delightful thing about uh, reading this sort of, uh, well, eight-year-old fiction as an adult because it actually takes you back and you sort of start recalling how you behaved as a child. Yeah, that's right. And I would say that the, this book here is, you know, eights at the bottom end of the scale. So tens are still going to enjoy this and tens and elevens. Well, here's the other go. You've got the language as well. I mean, uh, the word discombobulating is, is used in there. The language for um, sort of that age group, how do you know what to pick? How do you know how far to go? Well, that's uh, – um, th- you get a sense of that over a period. I also find that editors are very good on that front, so they'll change an expression that they think is too difficult. But it's amazing, I think, for anyone who's trying to write for kids uh, and hasn't had a go before, uh, one of the things is that you can um, go higher than you think. So most people think go lower than they think, um, but actually go higher than you think and, and get it pulled back by an editor – because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back now to a picture book I wrote called Granny Saurus Rex. It's aimed at three to four-year-olds, first book I ever wrote. And in that book, 11 times I used the word she rampaged. She rampaged up the street. She rampaged on public transport. She rampaged in a shop specialising in China and other breakables. So, you know, I sort of had that word that rampage. No four, three or four-year-old knows the word rampage, but by the end of the smash-up, they do. It's the context, yeah. and they learn. So you're not yeah. talking down to them. You're actually acknowledging they've got that skill and capacity. And, I mean, you, you look at children, and they will have learnt a vocabulary even before going to school. So it's a natural talent they've got. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm looking at words I've used in this one. Dahlias. Um, is that how you say that type of flower? Dahlia. Yeah. Dahlias. Dahlia. So dahlias are in there, um, which, you know, I barely know how to say, let alone... <laughs> An eight-year-old. Um, I'm looking to see if there's anything else that's on the more sophisticated side. Um, nothing that's particularly standing out. But um, but as you say, it's discombobulates in the book. And and uh, well, there, there are other examples, but it's treating the reader with respect, that year level with respect, because and that natural inclination to learn and acquire language. And I've, I've actually been reading each night to my son at the moment, um, and, and that's one of the really key things I think that children's authors like to get across is keep, 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 keep reading to um, kids as even after they get into the self-reading period. So I was reading Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim last night, which is obviously a, you know, that's now a f- nearly a 50-year classic. But um, the language in that is... Yeah, there's they use one you know that one would notice you know it's that sort of mm. the third person um, in that respect and I was and I was thinking this is quite a I'm surprised but Harry's hanging on that book made me read extra chapters and and he definitely the language is above him and yet um, he is he knows that those rats are special and he knows that you know the little mouse, mouse Timothy has to yeah. surpri- survive and and so the key storytelling bits. Um, making you want to keep reading, uh, and, you know, it just works. Another story in there is a riff on the three little pigs, uh, Mr. Wolf Pie, and it's uh, that's by R. A. Spratt. A slightly darker vision, yeah, but it's playing on the sort of uh, sounds and traditions that children would have been brought up with, anyway. Um, which is interesting. You do that in some of your other yeah. books as well. So, but- I, yeah, I had The Cow Tripped Over the Moon was my big hit a couple of years ago and, and was the National Simultaneous Storytime book last year. And I've got another one called Hickory Dickory Dash. And I know what 
she's trying to do there, which is to, you know, it's a, it's a really nice first step for someone else to have already taken it out of copyright. <laughs> and, um, and so those great uh, famous uh, stories that are part of, you know, really part of the lore of... Uh, well, they would of, be familiar yeah. with that, the sound of it, with the storyline. And then you can play on that storyline, which again expands the possibilities of imagination. And right. it's fun to go there. Yeah, absolutely it is. And, and you keep seeing those come back all the way back to Roald Dahl with the revolting rhymes when he... When he took apart the the you know Cinderella and Snow White and a whole lot of others, it's just been a constant theme for kids writers to to play around with them. So the book is laugh your head off again and again. A range of authors: Andy Griffiths, R. A. Spratt, Alex Ratt, John Marsden, Deborah Abela, Tony Wilson, Alan Bruff, Meredith Costain, Tristan Banks, and really. As adults, I think we should be reading more children's fiction. No, I need to ask a quick question yep. here. Tony, um, do you keep all that good vocabulary in for the Selwood Boys series that you write? Uh, so the Selwood Boys is um, that's a story of the four boys growing up in Bendigo and, and imagining their childhood and getting some real stories as well. And I, I'd like to think it's in the similar vein to Laugh Your Head Off Again and Again. It's about the same age group and, and again, not talking down to middle grade readers. And, and and so yeah, I would say that uh, you know they've been really well received, and and you know they're not. I always say that they're not uh, propaganda for the Geelong <laughs> Football Club because they're really about being in Bendigo in the kind of years of pre-screens and and living outdoorsy sort of sporty lives as kids. Yeah. But I think it's something all adults should do. Forget the kids buying the books for kids. Yeah. Get in, indulge in some children's fiction and rediscover your youth. Jan, your guest is. Monica McInerney, and she's her gra- the grandmother is rediscovering her youth. Here we go. There's the saying, where you hang your hat is home, but is it? I'm welcoming back to Published or Not a very well-travelled author, Monica McInerney. Welcome back, Monica. Hello, Jan. It's great to be back again. And where do you call home? Well, at the moment, I, I mean, I live in Dublin, in Ireland, but here's my voice, so I'm very Australian still. I think recently I've realised I don't have a home and I don't have two homes, but I have two almost homes. Because as soon as I step back on Australian soil, I feel like, oh, I'm home again. But when I fly back to, to Dublin and, and I look out the window and it's all green and misty, I'll, and I, I still get that feeling, oh, I'm home. So I'm confused, really, I think. Well, I think your uh, character in this book, A Trip of a Lifetime, Lola Quinlan, is also a bit confused. She left Ireland when she was married, but how old is she now? She's 85 years old uh, as this book begins, and she had emigrated from Ireland to Australia as a 20-year-old with her, with her new husband and hasn't been back uh, to Ireland for 65 years and that's the springboard for the whole book that in the first chapter she an- announces to her startled family that uh, she she wants to go home while there's still time. She's very conscious of her age and um, that there might not be that much time left. So who is she taking? She decides to take her granddaughter, Bet uh, Quinlan, and her great-granddaughter, Ellen, with her um, as support as company as um, ballast I think and um, and and to feel that she has family traveling with her back to see what's what's left for her there I think so she's 85 and Alan is just 12 teenagers 13 yeah. yeah and of course she's been given a new iPhone to take with her but grandma uh, great-grandma Lola 
uh, set some rules about these, uh, this iPhone. Yeah, Lola's, Lola's a modern woman in many ways, um, but she, um, she is, she's, and she's a very flamboyant character and she, you know, she does embrace all of modern technology, but uh, she is a great believer that you need to stop and, and experience things as they're happening. And, of course, this trip back to Ireland is particularly yes. important for her, um, but for a 13-year-old who's, you know, who has travelled a little bit, um, as Ellen has, and has a phone, you know, she'd rather be Skyping, well, not even Skyping, what would she do, messaging her friends? Yes, Facebooking her friends, so um, Lola does have to lay down some ground rules very early on about the use of the use of social media on this trip. Well, um, the use of social media we're going to get to later. Just just gently edging in there, because um, Lola said, you know, you've got to support me. You've got to be my eyes. You've got to watch out. And Bet, her granddaughter, knows that Lola always gives reasons and it's always well-rounded so you actually end up supporting her <laughs> well I think a lot of it I mean I've not every every book I write obviously comes through some of the things that I'm feeling and caring about a lot and I suppose I mean I'm not 85 I'm only 52 but um, I've become really concerned about my own use of social media and 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 how I don't uh, sometimes something will happen and I think oh quick take a photo of it before mm. I realize you know before I experience it myself so I think some of what Lola says is, is me my wishful thinking, actually. <laughs> well, Lola, she doesn't really fit the mould of a meek and mild no. grandmother. No, she's not meek and mild. <laughs> not a golden olden, and not even a one footer. No, she's not. She's um, she's great. She's she's a grandmother. I'd love to have had Jan, to be honest. I um, I didn't know my own grandmothers. My mum's mum died before I was born, and Dad's mum died when I was just ten. So I didn't really have a sense of her, you know, um, unfortunately. And and I, as as a young woman, I really really wanted a grandmother I'd love to have had you know gone and talked to her and heard heard stories about my own mum and dad from her um so I created Lola I think to fill that sort of role emotional role <laughs> let me set the scene now Lola is back in Ireland she's in a very smart hotel there's a marquee set up in the garden for a wedding and Lola's watching all the long photo sessions taken of the bride and the groom let's hear it please Monica Lola could only imagine how forced their smiles were becoming. Perhaps it was good preparation for the years of marriage ahead. Not only the ups and downs, but also the necessity of keeping a smile on your face, even if it was sometimes the last thing you felt like doing. How long would this couple last? A year? Five years? Forever? Would there be children? Just one, or many? Or none at all, by choice or for sadder reasons? How would their families get on? Did their parents approve of their child's choice of life partner? Would all sorts of tensions come out tonight during the wedding reception in that splendid marquee with its array of fairy lights inside, the entrance bright with winding garlands of flowers, the smartly dressed guests all gathered together to wish the young couple a happy future? Lola's tears came from nowhere, shocking her. Her hands trembled as she brought them to her face, covering her eyes, trying to calm herself. It didn't work. She leaned forward, rocking as if she was a child, back and forth as she realised the truth. She didn't want to be here. So here she was. She was in Ireland and her memories are not really what she wants. She remembers her father didn't approve of her. Her mother wasn't strong enough to support her, to believe in her, to be proud of her. But then back in Clare, because this is where she lives back in Australia... Many see Lola as a national treasure with her flamboyance, her sense of fun and musical talents. But others in Clare 
certainly don't. Who is Geraldine and why doesn't she like Lola? Geraldine is Lola's daughter-in-law. And um, and as we said a little earlier, Lola's you know is a big personality. She's very flamboyant and she's very popular and she's um, quick-witted and she's a lot of fun to be around. So she has a lot of friends and and fans, I suppose. Um, but somebody with that much um, who throws out that much light and colour um, also casts a big shade. Mm. And there are always people who who don't like living in that shade. And Lola would be a very difficult mother-in-law to have because she was a single mother after her marriage ended, raising her son Jim on her own. And um, Jim's wife has always found it very hard to um, to to cast off Lola's presence and shadow. I think, uh, and so I do explore that a lot in this mm. book. About it's, it's a book about lots of things: homecomings and homesickness and um, grief and love. You know, which I often write about. But it is also very much about intergenerational relationships and how complicated they can be particularly the in-law relationships. Absolutely. <laughs> now, we were talking about um, online research capabilities earlier, you know, you know, what you can use the internet for. And there are things like Google Maps and popular sites like Ancestry.com. And there's also war records mm. that you can look up on. So, you know, you sort of this whole thing, is it possible to keep secrets? I think in the modern world it's, hard, it's harder and harder to um, particularly, you know, I think uh, – a lot of people, when they come to a new country, they want to make a new life. They want to leave some things behind them. You know, people leave, emigrate for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but I think in a way that you, you probably in the past, you could come and completely reinvent mm-hmm. yourself in a new country. Uh, now it's not so possible because uh, every, everything's expected to be online, all your data available. Um, so, the, yeah, certainly I look at that as well, the idea of, of, of being able to, to hide facts in the past when mm-hmm. everything is available at the fingertip now. Yeah, and, and even... Complete strangers can find out your history too. We, you, we have um, Des, the, the chauffeur. Now, he's hired as the chauffeur to drive everybody around uh, Ireland and he goes delving into their history and finds things that they don't want him to find. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with Des. Des is a very, very chatty, very inquisitive um, chauffeur that they happen to hire um, to take them around in, in County Kildare in Ireland. And, um, and you know, he's got a bit too much ha- time on his hands. And, um, and once he gets their names and a little bit of detail about him. And it's, it is, it is. I mean, it's so easy. You can meet a person at a party, uh, you know, in real life and, and get their name and, you know, oh, where do you work? And before you know it, you could go home and Google and oh, amass their oh, entire life the history. Absolutely. Um, so I did want to sort of say about that, about, you know, the, the stories we tell about ourselves, it doesn't always match the truth. Well, the last time we talked, it was about a book called Hello from the Gillespies. And Mrs Gillespie did the annual catch-up of what she and her family were doing. And she did this on a group email. So what went wrong for her? <laughs> yeah, that was the, the Christmas um, end of year Christmas letter that, that, that for once she, rather than put the gloss on everything, she told the truth about what was happening with her marriage and what she thought oh, about her in-laws yeah. and all of her kids. Yeah, and that, and that went viral. So there's ways of information being spread. In this book... We have Bet. Bet works as a journalist in uh, the local uh, Clare newspaper, and she asks her sister Car- Carrie to write a little, a, a bit of a blog about something that's happening. Well, not only does Carrie write, write a blog, she also takes a photo, puts it, sends it out to her friends, and it goes viral. 
And that was fun and too easy to write how <laughs> how badly something like that can happen too. Again, without you know being careful with spoilers, etc. But um, exactly that that something can be done so innocently that you know you share a little bit of information with your friend. Oh, look at this! Isn't this funny? And then they forward it to somebody who forwards oh, it to somebody who forwards it to yes. somewhere. And sometimes the idea of going viral can be seen as a really positive thing. And um, but in this book, um, I, I explore. That it's that well, it, it's not always a happy thing at all. So, Carrie sent out this photo and that old thing. Any publicity is good publicity, although it's an absolutely disgusting photo. But Carrie's writing in this blog. Now, this writing is absolutely horrible, mm, Monica. Thank you. I know it was so much fun to write. <laughs> did you really write? Yes, it? I did. Oh. It was great. It was um because because Carrie's not a journalist. Her sister is a very good journalist, but Carrie's not. But she needs the, the, a TV company has come to their local area to film a, se- a TV series, and so she, um, Carrie's job is to write the blog about that. And um and she's basically just an excitable you know woman in her thirties, and she's not a writer. She she writes like she talks, and um so it's full of exclamation marks, and it has all these asides, and she's asking questions, and it was great fun because um, I do lots and lots and lots of drafts of my books. Um, but with the the blogs that Carrie wrote, whatever I wrote first in her voice, I, I never touched. That was just how they were. I just can't imagine you ever writing <laughs> yeah, anything it was so me. bad. <laughs> I'm a good ghostwriter, Jan. <laughs> a terrible ghostwriter, actually. Okay, well, there's quite a bit about changes in the in the media too, about uh, journalism fading out, the the community newspaper closing down. Now, this, as I said, Bet um, was she was the journalist. And Carrie was the blogger, and there was an older sister called Anna. And, you know, I didn't realise this until I got the A, B, C. And they were the alphabet sisters. Mm. And remember that this was the title of another one of your books. Had a look at that and found out that there was another book in between, Mm. Lola's Secret. So I found, I I read this as an alone book and found it very satisfying. But then I I thought, just how hard is it when you've written reams about these characters to get their backstory down to one or two lines? Yeah, it surprised me that I did actually because the Alphabet Alphabet Sisters I wrote back in 2003 with the Quinlan family and about Lola reuniting her three grandchildren, um, Anna, Bet and Carrie, and because um, they'd been feuding, and so she w- wants to bring them back again. And then um, about nine years later, I wrote Lola's Secret, which is about a, a few years after, like a long time in my writing um, distance, but uh, about two years after the Alphabet Sisters in terms of book in book timing. And then this one's about uh, another two years later. Um, and I had to. It was funny. I had to reread both those earlier books <gasps> to get. I mean, of course, I knew the I knew the characters inside out. They're very very strong to me, and Lola Quinlan particularly. But to get all the tiny details about, you know, sometimes as simple as are they left-handed or right-handed, oh. the names of their friends. One of the friends has a cat. Who has the cat? You know, so that I haven't got the cat moving to somebody else's house. Um, so tiny continuity details as well. Um, but also, you're dead right. I had to um, Lola's secret. This something happens in that that um, that I needed to condense it because mm. it's it, it's important to Lola, but it's not integral to this story. Uh, so a, a book that took me a year to write. Um, that's you know, three hundred. 50 pages I condensed into a paragraph <laughs> so, I, I couldn't believe it I'm yeah. reading it and as I said it's, it's a bit like Star Wars now you know I've got to go back and sort of read <laughs> See the, the earlier ones yeah. <laughs> but like, 
Bet being engaged to Carrie's husband. And I'm thinking, what? What happened then exactly? Yeah. <laughs> I, I need more details on that, which <laughs> well, encouraged me to go back yeah. and re- reread this. It's like one of those cooking shows, Jane. You say, here's one I prepared earlier. Here's the whole, you know, here's the whole story. So. Now, last thing about uh, Lola, which you can't come out in a book really, is she's such a wild dresser. Bright orange poncho worn with vertically striped pair of flares. She had also discovered online vintage shopping. Now, this is something which, listeners, I wish you could sort of see the author today because <laughs> Monica McInerney has the most wonderful vintage clothing. <laughs> I have to say I'm lucky that I, I um, like Lola. Um, I um, absolutely adore charity shops. Lola works in a charity mm. shop in the Clare Valley um, and her clothing is really fantastic fun to write because, like, like other characters, when you're dressing them, you need to sort of think, okay, what, you know, what's their job or what's their personality, what would they wear? Lola, um, just because she wants to fill her life with colour and and Mm. extravagance, will just wear anything together. So she'll wear paisley with tartan, with silver lamé or whatever. (laughs) Um, So I'm a little – I'm not wearing that, I must say. But I I do spend a lot of time finding vintage fabrics in charity shops, so I think a a bit of that crept into Lola. We're going to finish with an Irish – some Irish sayings. And this is apparently one. At the end of the day, everybody was tired but happy. Now, that's what I felt like after reading this book. Oh, that's beautiful. Because it was a grand book. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. That's a beautiful thing to hear. So I've been speaking with Monica McInerney about her book, A Trip of a Lifetime, a Penguin Random House book. Oh, well done once again, Monica. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. (laughs)